If you're using one of the Black Bibles, you will find today's text on page 493, 493 of the Black Bibles that are provided there for you. I would encourage you to open your Bible this morning and follow along. Uh, Here at North Hills, we make a distinct effort to march our way through passages of Scripture. We will often remind ourselves that we have nothing of value to offer, but we find our, our guidance our instruction in the Scripture, and so we use a philosophy here called expository preaching. It just comes from the root word expose. So we want to expose the text, we want to understand it, and then we want to apply it to ourselves. So I invite you to open to Habakkuk. We're going to take a quick overview of these three chapters and understand the message for our lives this morning. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider His Word. Lord, you've been gracious to us to reveal your word. Without it, without your revelation of yourself, we would have no hope, no help. And so, Lord, we are grateful even this morning to come before your word, to be humbled before it, and to hear the message of it. We pray that in these moments that we have together, you would use this to conform us to the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you have seen the articles entitled, Where Was God on 9-11? I mean, just, if you just Google that, Where Was God on 9-11, you will find a score of articles that, that pose that question. But that question is a perennial question anytime a, a major catastrophe happens. Where was God in this event? And where was God when this happened? And in fact, the question is not a new one. It was not posed for the first time when 9-11 occurred. It was not posed for the first time during recent tragedies. It goes back before that. If you trace uh, histories back in time, you'll find that question again and again. Where was God when this tragedy took place? What was going on? What, did, did God miss something? The question goes back even before modern times. And although it may not be worded exactly like that, the, the question goes back for centuries. God's people, as well as those who reject God, pose this question again and again when times of adversity come, when difficulty come. And and it is an important question as, as followers of Christ to ask ourselves, where is God in the face of adversity? Where is God when difficult times prevail? This was exactly the question that Habakkuk wrestled with. And God in His grace has has recorded for us Habakkuk's wrestling with this very question. Where is God in bad times? We see here almost a bit of a dialogue between God's prophet Habakkuk and God Himself, who gives a profitable answer both in Habakkuk's day and in our day to how we ought to respond when bad times come. I've given you a handout there. If you haven't gotten one already, you can flag Brother Doug down and uh, maybe fill in some of the blanks as we go through. The author, of course, as the 
the title implies is Habakkuk. Um, the, 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 the name Habakkuk simply means ardent embrace or one who embraces. We really actually don't know a lot about the prophet Habakkuk other than the, his name. And we know, of course, here from chapter 1, verse 1, that he was a prophet, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah. This would be before the Babylonians carried them away into captivity, which we know is coming in the history of Israel. And, of course, after, many years after, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, had been, had been defeated. What's kind of the context? What is the occasion? What are these harsh circumstances that Habakkuk finds himself in? Well, the date that we, we're proposing, the date that scholars propose, is sometime between 612 and 605 B.C. Now, the reason for that is because we're kind of framed historically, If you notice in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, I am raising up the the Chaldeans. This is is a a subset of the Babylonian Empire. And so this seems to indicate that this is during the rise of power of of the Babylonian power. You remember last week when we considered the prophet Nahum, he was predicting that Nineveh, the Assyrian superpower would be destroyed. The Babylonians were the superpower that that raised up and eventually would destroy Nineveh. They would defeat Egypt and they would be the rising superpower of the day. And so it seems best to date Habakkuk in this period 612 to 605. Now why is that important? Well it's important because you have to understand that that we're about a hundred years after the ten Northern tribes had been devastated, and times are tough. Times are difficult for the prophet Habakkuk. The Assyrian nation, which we talked about a good bit last week, had come up against Jerusalem on more than one occasion and continued to be an impending threat, continued to be a a problem, a, a source of fear for the people of Jerusalem. Beyond that, it was difficult because spiritually the people were far from God. Habakkuk was preaching to a group of people who, although they had historically had revivals, had long ago left the ways of God. They were, they were marked by wickedness, idolatry, injustice. This was what ruled the day as Habakkuk is preaching. And so against this this backdrop of of wickedness running wild in Judah, there is a righteous man who stands up at the behest of God and prophesies, but he begins to be plagued by a question. How long? How long, Lord, are you going to let this wickedness run its course? How long will these people go unchecked, unpunished, unjudged, unrestrained? How long? Long will this be this way? Notice with me Habakkuk 1 verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? So the occasion of harsh circumstances is, yes, the threatening environment. Yes, the world powers around, but also a a tired preacher. 
who's warning of God's judgment and wondering, will God ever take corrective action? So this first section here, chapter 1, 1 through, through 2, 1, consists of two complaints by Habakkuk and God's first answer. So chapter 1, verse 2, we already read together, verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Do you ever complain to God? No, not me, pastor. I don't do that. I mean, do you ever just in your in the privacy of your prayer closet say, Lord, this is not right. This just does not add up to me. God, why is it this way? Habakkuk is being painfully honest. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we are seeing the complaint of a prophet who is saying, wickedness persists. God, how long will you let this go on? How long Theodicy, the word theodicy literally means the vindication of God. It was actually, the term theodicy was actually originally coined by a philosopher in 1710 who wrote a book in German called Theodicy. It's the realm of philosophy that attempts to reconcile the problem of evil with the reality of a good God. This is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. God is good. He is righteous. He is just. Yet when I look around, my circumstances don't seem to confirm that. He's wrestling with the question of theodicy. Why do God's actions even seem contrary to his nature? And and if we're honest, all of us have in our heart of hearts asked this question at times. All of us have have searched out the ways of God and wanted an answer to why things in the world are the way they are. And so God answers him. But more important than God's answer is, is Habakkuk's response to circumstances. So that's kind of the background. But I, I wonder this morning, what is the background for you? What is the context for you? I mean, do you struggle with this same question? Are you troubled by evil in the world? Perhaps perhaps you are are troubled with an event that is taking place in your life, a, a trial that you are enduring, a circumstance that is harsh, days that are long, things that are not going according to plan. So for Habakkuk, that was his context, but the reality of it is we all face this context, don't we? We all reflect during harsh circumstances, during difficult times, we reflect on God's plan. Well, here's the problem. There's, There's God's plan doesn't always seem to add up, right? I mean, if we're honest, we say, well, I know God's got a plan, but it just... Sometimes, does it make sense to me? And in fact, 
in his answer, God acknowledges that very fact. Notice with me chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told to you. You wouldn't get it even if I explained it. We must be humble enough to recognize that there are times that we demand answers from God. We desire answers from God, and the fact is, even if the answer was given to us, we cannot digest it with our limited wisdom. We can't understand what God is up to. God says in verse 5, yeah, I'm doing something. I'm working a work. I'm going to give you a glimpse into it, but you're not fully going to appreciate what I am up to. And then he goes on in verse 6 and gives a more full answer. He explains that he is raising up a superpower. They are terrible in verse 7. They are dreadful. Their judgment is coming. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Judgment is coming, Habakkuk. And so God chooses to answer Habakkuk's complaint, but in doing so, he takes up Habakkuk's image of sight. Habakkuk was frustrated because he believed that by not acting, God was, was taking the wrong side. And so God now instructs Habakkuk, and actually he uses second-person plurals in this section. In verse 5 he says, look, watch. He's actually using plural. He's saying all of you, not just Habakkuk the prophet by yourself, but all of you nation, and by implication all of us. Look, be amazed, be utterly astounded, verse 5. Instead of being a distant, uninterested, uninvolved God, God was about to announce that he was going to do a work, a work that would amaze the prophet Habakkuk and God's people. So God explains what he's doing in verses 5 through 11 by raising up a power, the Babylonian nation, to inflict his judgment. But it's interesting when we get down to verse 12. I mean, I don't know if you have headings in your Bible. I, I do. Um, verses 2 through 4 say the prophet's question. And then verse 5, you see a heading, perhaps if you have headings in your Bible, the Lord's answer, the Lord's reply. And then over verse 12, you see the prophet's second question, or maybe you have a heading similar to that. All right, so, so Habakkuk says, this doesn't make sense, God. God answers him, starting in verse 5. And then in verse 12, it's almost as if Habakkuk says, yeah, now that even makes less sense. Like, now I really don't get it, God. <laughs> I mean, I, I was struggling before, but now that you've given your answer, now I've really got some questions. Habakkuk actually raises a second set of concerns beginning in verse 12. Now, now that I see what you're planning to do and, and you're planning to do, I have a bigger question. I know about your holiness, verse 12. You're from everlasting to everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Now, all of this is true. All of these are great theological affirmations. 
And sometimes we'll quote just those sections of those verses as truths about God, and they are. But in the context, Habakkuk is saying, look, Lord, I know this is true about you. You are a God of holiness. You, you are a great God, yet you're going to raise up this vile, wicked, violent nation to accomplish your purposes? That makes no sense. Habakkuk makes his second complaint. He asks a question. But yet, in so doing, he also affirms the truth about God. You know, I've mentioned this before, but in recent decades, it has become popular to glorify doubt. And there's a seed of truth to it. The fact is we all have doubts in our heart. We should be honest about those. We should wrestle with those. But what you see modeled for us in Scripture is doubts that are answered. Doubts that come to a conclusion that, that find their way to the character of God. And what does the prophet Habakkuk do? He acknowledges who God is as the answer to his dilemma. He says, I know about your holiness, verse 12. I, I know about your unchangeable character, verse 12. He's also convinced that God will not abandon or forget his promises. Notice also in verses 12, he says, we shall not die. Now, what does he mean? There will be Israelites who will die in God's judgment. What he means is we will not be annihilated as a nation. God will keep his promises to, to use his people. I, I understand, God, what you're doing. I'm just shocked at the way in which you're doing it. And so as Habakkuk makes his second complaint, he actually roots it in who God is. God's purposes never change. He is a rock. He will accomplish, accomplish the purposes that he sets out to do. Now, I wonder, when we face challenges, is that our attitude? What challenges do you face this morning? What troubling circumstance of our world causes you to be unsettled? What health challenge or the loss of a loved one or, or the fear of, of failure, uh, the, the, the future that troubles you, what is it that this morning weighs upon your heart and mind? And do you find yourself running to the character of God? You and I are faced with troubling circumstances. And, and just like Habakkuk, we are, are tempted. We, we have this tendency to, to doubt God. And so with this in mind, Habakkuk reaches two important conclusions. The first I already mentioned in verse 12, we will not die. That is to say, God will not abandon us forever. His righteous plan will be accomplished. His promise to us will be kept. His covenant will be fulfilled. We will not be completely cut off. And then the second observation he makes in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand my watch. So the image is one who ascends a high tower to watch out over the city. He says in verse 1, I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say, how he will answer me. So Habakkuk says, secondly, 
I know God will keep his promises. I know he will be faithful. I know he will keep his covenant. And I am going to wait for God to adjust my perspective. You ever heard stories of people who give an account of something that happened? And they are certain. In fact, even if you were to hook them to a lie detector machine, it would confirm that they are telling the truth. They are certain that what they saw was what happened. But yet the stories don't match up. And maybe, maybe in the coming weeks, a video surfaces. Right? You've all heard of these kind of things happening. And, and the video reveals the fact that, that their recollection was not at all right. Their, their perspective was, was skewed. And, and that's the way our brains work, right? We, we fill in the gaps, and that becomes part of our memory. Well, Habakkuk is acknowledging the fact that sometimes our perspective is wrong. Sometimes the way we see things is, is skewed. And Habakkuk says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to mount up this high tower, and I'm going to watch and see what God is going to do. So what is Habakkuk's response? Even when his plan can't be fully understood, even when his plan seems mistaken, Habakkuk, how do we respond? What what are the godly to do when evil triumphs, when God seems absent? God's people are to live by faith. And so really what this book is about is, is the secret to developing a faith for bad times. God's people must live by faith. That is the central message. In hard times, in difficulties, in unpleasant circumstances, God's people must live by faith. So in chapter 2, verse 3, God assures Habakkuk that what he is about to reveal to him would in fact come to pass in his appointed time. Verse 3, the vision is, is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and I will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. God affirms that he will do his right work in his time. And Habakkuk was to wait patiently for God to act in his time and his way. And chapter 2, verse 4, is the theme verse for the book of Habakkuk. And you will probably recognize at least part of it. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, the prophet is setting up a contrast. God is setting up a contrast between the one who lives by faith and the proud. Now, if you were picking the opposite of living by faith, maybe the word proud would not have come to your mind. How are these two in contrast? You see, the man who is proud has a soul that is not upright. He's lost. He's away from God Rather than looking to God and entrusting Him, the proud looks to himself, to to his own abilities, to his own agenda. At the heart of pride is self. Self Self-reliance, self-gratification, self-independence. But at the heart of faith is dependence, dependence upon another. The heart of faith is dependence upon God. The proud man is lost. He's unsaved. But the proud 
is saved, and the just shall live by faith. Now, of course, you recognize the last part of verse 4 because it is quoted three times in the New Testament. And one of those quotations was the kindling wood that lit the Protestant Reformation, particularly in Germany. If you know the story of Martin Luther, you will know that as he studied the book of Romans, he came across Paul's quotation of the prophet Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, and it was almost as if a light came on in his head. And that lit a fire in his heart that would spread throughout Europe. The just shall live by faith. Now, in, the, in, in Romans, Paul is actually using this phrase to argue for justification by faith, but elsewhere it is used in the New Testament to acknowledge the fact that, that we are sanctified by faith. So let me put it this way. What brought you into God's family, if you are a believer this morning, you were, you were birthed into God's family through faith, and you must walk in you must live in that faith as well. Faith is not just something that introduces us to the kingdom of God, that, that makes us a child of God, but it is that which must also characterize the child of God. So let's take that one step at a time. So perhaps you're here this morning and there's never been a time when you have been forgiven of your sins and made right with God. What is this all about? Well, the fact is we are all separated from God, and this is actually the case that Paul is building in the book of Romans. We're all separated from God by a thing called sin. That is, we do that which does not please God, we fail to do that which does please God, and because of that, we are separated from Him. We are deserving of punishment, not just in this life, but for all eternity in the life to come in a terrible place called hell. That's what you and I deserve because of our sin. We're separated from God. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came and He lived the perfect life and He died on a cross. And as He died on that cross, that punishment that you and I deserve were poured out upon Him to make provision that you and I could be forgiven, that God's justice could be fulfilled and we not have to pay the consequences. Well, how then do we access that provision. How do we access that forgiveness that is found in Christ? Well, Christ died, He was buried, and He rose again the third day, giving Him the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to Him in faith and repentance. And so how do you have forgiveness of sin? How do you have right relationship with God? It is through faith alone. If you've never done that, today can be the day where you humble yourself, turn from your own way, and depend on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Any of us who are members of North Hills would be happy to take a Bible if you're watching us by video and you would like to reach out to us through our website, through Twitter. We would, we would consider it an honor to be able to answer your questions about how you can have forgiveness of sin and be made right with God. Once a person has forgiveness of sin, they have accessed that that provision through faith alone, we now must live by faith. And so, so the just, the justified, now must live every day by faith. And when we're facing harsh circumstances, when we're facing difficulty, perhaps nothing more than that calls upon us to exercise faith. When circumstances are harsh, when things are tough, we must respond in faith. 
One can hardly overstate the importance of this theme, not just for the book of Habakkuk, not just for the Old Testament, but for really for all of Scripture. And actually central to the whole way of Jewish thinking is Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the last part. The Talmud actually records a famous remark from a well-known rabbi. Moses gave Israel 613 commands. David reduced them to 11. Micah to 3. Isaiah to but 2. Habakkuk reduced God's commands to 1. The righteous shall live by faith. So central is this one little phrase in the Hebrew Bible that for centuries Jewish scholars have felt that these words summarize the entirety of the Jewish canon. Many rabbis point to Habakkuk 2.4 and say that that is the summary of all of what we would call the Old Testament. And my friends, it's not just the summary of the Old Testament. If you know about Christ and His work, this verse celebrates all that Christ has done. Because we are made just, we are made right with God, not because of our provision, not because of our strength, not because of our own doing, but through faith we are justified. And so, of course, the New Testament writers appeal to Habakkuk's statement as they establish justification in Romans 1 and Galatians 3, but also sanctification in Hebrews 2. They are all accomplished through faith. So what is Habakkuk calling us to this morning? He's calling us to live by faith. He's calling us to live our daily lives in the same way in which we are saved, by depending on God. You say, okay, that's great. I'm supposed to live by faith, but that's not very practical. How do I do that? How is it that I can take my wayward heart that is doubting God, that is questioning circumstances, that is, it is not finding compatibility with the circumstances I see around me and what I know to be true about God, what do I do in those hard times when my faith is tried? The Puritan Daniel Dyke said, The Word, then, is the storehouse of all instruction. Look not for any new, diverse doctrine to be taught thee by affliction. You understand what he's saying? you're probably not going to learn anything new in the face of adversity. I continue, which is not in the word, for in truth herein stands our teaching by affliction, that it fits and prepares us for the word. By breaking and subdividing the stubbornness of our hearts and making them pliable and capable of the impression of the word. And so, in Habakkuk's instructions, we find, beginning in chapter 3, a celebration of God's character. Chapter 3, in its entirety, 
is a psalm. All of chapter 3 is a celebration. It is a song about who God is. So the last part of chapter 2, God announces five woe oracles upon Babylon, the proud, in contrast to the just who will live by faith, who, who, will, who will, then the, the, the Babylonians will not be humbled. They will be proud, and God would accomplish His purposes with them. But then in chapter 3, God's people must meditate on His presence. So the just must live by faith, And how do we do that? How do we do that in a practical way? We meditate on who God is. I would just encourage you sometime during the course of this week to take chapter 3, which is headed, A Prayer of Habakkuk the Prophet, and make it the prayer of you. To pray chapter 3. And when adversity comes, when times are discouraging... When, when challenges are overwhelming, come back to this passage. Sing in your heart the same psalm that Habakkuk wrote about God because what he is doing in chapter 3 is reminding himself, teaching his own heart, instructing his heart, preaching to himself, if you will, the truth about who God is. Do you understand that the problem is not solved? I mean, you look, at the, you look at the very beginning of Habakkuk, and, and in chapter 1, verse 2, he's saying, Lord, how long shall I cry? And you won't hear. Habakkuk opens the book with a complaint, but watch how the book ends. Chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Do you understand what he's saying in verse 17? Though everything is bad, even though circumstances have gone awry, even though there is no available blessing, watch this verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Even though circumstances around me are bad, get it now, Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change. From the beginning of the prophecy to the end of the prophecy, the circumstances around him didn't change. What changed? His perspective. His meditation on the character of God. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Because verse 19, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. Not anchoring myself to my circumstances around me. Because those will shift. Those will change. Even when things are going well, that could change in a moment. Even though the relationships around me, the people around me are a source source of joy, any of that can be taken away in a moment. Even though I am, I am being blessed right now, even though I'm prospering right now financially, that could all be gone in a moment. Even though I'm grateful for my, for my health, that could all be taken away in one event. Those circumstances are not the source of my joy. Those things that surround me are not my cause for rejoicing. Habakkuk says, my cause for rejoicing 
My, my cause, my source of strength is God himself. In verse, eight, in verse 19, he will make my feet like deer feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. Just like a deer who can run almost as if it were over the tops of, of the mountains. Light feet running through the field, unencumbered. God will do that for our hearts when we are anchored on Him, when the Lord God is our strength. You've heard me say this before, and I think it's worth repeating. I must never look at my circumstances to make judgments about my God. But I must always look to my God to make judgments about my circumstances. I must never look to my circumstances and make judgments about my God. I must look to my God to make judgments about my circumstances. Forgive me if you've heard me use this as an illustration before. It is an illustration that is helpful to me um, when I'm thinking about adversity, difficulty. And so I know I've used it before, but perhaps it will help you as well. Do you know what VFR pilots are and IFR? VFR is visual flight rules. IFR is instrument flight rules. A number of years ago, we, uh, my wife was in another state, and I had this brilliant idea that I would pay a flight student for his fuel so he could get some hours, and we would just zip up there and pick up my wife and zip right on back. Well, we zipped right on up there and picked up my wife, and we zipped about halfway back, and we landed for fuel and started looking at the radar and said, hmm, we have a problem. <laughs> so this young man was VFR rated, <laughs> visual flight rules, but he was not instrument rated. What is VFR? Well, some people call them fair weather pilots because it's just fine as long as you can see, as long as there's not a cloud deck. You can, you can fly, no problem, but when, when the clouds roll in, oh, now we need instruments to fly by. Now, one of the things, my understanding, I'm not a pilot, but my understanding is when they are training for instrument flight rules, one of the things that they have to drill into the students is trust your instruments. Why? Because there's this thing called vertigo. Right? You can get up in a cloud deck. You can get where you cannot see and you get vertigo. So you would swear you're flying level. You're sure you're flying level, but in reality, you're in a nosedive headed towards the ground. And, and so you're certain, you, you feel a certain way, you, you know it's absolutely true, but when you look at your instruments, you know that you're wrong. And what does an instrument-rated pilot have to do? He has to trust his instruments even though everything within him is screaming that those instruments are wrong. No, no, the instruments are wrong. I got I to gotta, I gotta adjust here. And what he could do is adjust himself right into a dive towards the ground. Instead, he has to ignore his feelings, ignore what seems to be the case, ignore what he is almost certain is true, and follow the instruments. When we are in difficult circumstances, the truth may not feel true. What should we do? 
We should follow the instruments. We should say fixed on, on the, the thing that doesn't change. The thing that is, that is grounded, that is rooted, that is God Himself. The prophet says, the Lord is my strength. How do we react when things are difficult? How do we react when we're in the midst of hardship? What do we do? We meditate on God. We, we, we rest ourselves in His character. We rehearse who He is. We keep our eyes fixed firmly on those instruments that will never change. And so the challenge for us this morning is the same as the challenge for Habakkuk. What do we do when, harm, when times are difficult? What do we do when things are harsh? When circumstances are harsh, walk by faith. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminder of your prophet, even, even the fact that you allow us to see the struggle that your people have had in reconciling their circumstances with who you are. I pray, Lord, if there are any who don't know you as Savior, that they would really, this morning, embrace the truth that the just will live by faith.